Welcome to the uh, day 70, day 80, day 90, wherever you are in the world in terms of the lockdown that continues in different parts of the world. We're increasingly as far into the lockdown as we are getting close to Election Day. Tonight, resolve that the government's response to COVID-19 is the great threat, not COVID-19, both to our civil liberties and to our economic future, but also to various presidential and electoral politics that may be coming down the pipe. In our daily uh, review of the COVID-19 news, another report from that has come out both from the CDC and from a wide range of other studies, including Professor Ioannidis at Stanford, a, a, a friend of the show, Daniel Horowitz, over at Conservative Review, uh, has the headline, New Study Demonstrates How Low Coronavirus Fatality Rate Is Outside Nursing Homes. Indeed, the unicorn simulation models turned out to be completely and egregiously in error, apparently intended to push a particular narrative to favor power-mad politicians and monopolistic philanthropists uh, or disguised as philanthropists like Bill Gates with their own policy agendas they wanted to implement using the pandemic as the pretext to accomplish it and accommodate it. And as we now have hard data, what does that data reveal? It reveals that unless you live inside a nursing home and have comorbid conditions over the age of 60, your mortality risk from this COVID-19 is less in many cases than the flu. That's what the real data is increasingly showing based on the serology studies and surveys. In addition, there's now studies and surveys that have taken place around the world where they're looking at where people are outdoors a lot, where there's high humidity, where there's a high temperature, where there's good sunlight. Those places are experiencing some of the lowest COVID-19 outbreaks, even though they're some of the poorest countries in the world, and even though many of them have not shut down at all. So that contrast tells us that being indoors is where the disease takes place, and the colder weather uh, facilitates people being indoors. But, of course, here the lockdowns have made it mandatory for many people across the country and the world. And an extrapolation of all the serology tests, and those are tests to look at whether someone has the antibodies from COVID-19. It's called seroprevalence. And now there's been dozens of those all around the country and all around the world, including in Santa Clara, Los Angeles, Boston, Miami, New York City, New York State. Uh, Germany, Iceland, large parts of Europe and other parts of the world has been studied and surveyed by Professor Ioannidis at Stanford University. And he concludes, quote, that for people at, uh, outside of the nursing home range, the uh, fatality rate, what they call the IFR, is similar to seasonal influenza. That is, in fact, what the remember when everybody was making fun of, oh, yeah, it's just the flu, bro. It's going to turn out that just the flu bro people were a lot more right than it's the plague bro folks. Indeed, outside of hospitals, congested public transport systems, and nursing homes, it appears that the fatality rate is actually even less for people without comorbid conditions under the age of 60 than the flu is. That's what the actual hard data shows. An additional study from Bloomberg admits that the results of the Europe's lockdown experiment are in. And what is uh, from the University of Oxford's uh, School of Government did a full study and survey, looked at all of the countries, looked at when they shut down, looked at how much they shut down, looked at the mobility data of how successful they were with their shutdowns, and compared it to the outcomes that they experienced both before, during, and after those governmental actions took place. What did they conclude? The same thing we've been reporting would be the case for months. Quote, there is little correlation between the severity of a nation's restrictions and whether it managed to, cur to curb any excess fatalities. Indeed, and in further on in the report, it goes into what the normal range was, which, were the, which places were the most severe. And they said, quote, 
The data show that the relative strictness of a country's containment measures had little bearing on the impact of COVID-19 in their country. Indeed, the countries with the most intense lockdowns look likely to suffer the most economically. That appears to be ultimately the only lasting impact of the lockdowns is damage to the economy and harm to civil liberties. Indeed, as this headline from Kansas City reveals, more people died from homicide in Kansas City than have died from COVID-19. Moreover, in fact, in the United Kingdom, they're discovering that pushing all of this panic porn on the public has led to a fear-addicted populace that now may interfere with the ability to even restart the economy and civil society. And that is why all of a sudden a new narrative is starting to emerge from some of the institutional locations in the United Kingdom. The headline reads, coronavirus recovery rates are now to be published daily to encourage people to return to work. What they're talking about is less than 1% of people who have died from COVID-19 did not have other comorbid conditions. And almost everyone who has got it either ended up asymptomatic, never experiencing any symptoms at all, or very mild symptoms. Very few were ever hospitalized, and an even smaller percentage ever died from it. Indeed, it's uh, getting to be, for some population groups under 25, under 30, you're more likely to die from being hit by a lightning than you are from COVID-19. They're now having to report that data because they realize honest and accurate data is going to be critical to restoring the economy in various parts of the world. In addition, on that economic front, More and more people are identifying the risk that this continues to pose, that the airlines may never come back, that many restaurants may never come back, that many small businesses may never come back, that many uh, various enterprises that are leisure-oriented, such as Airbnb owners, may never come back. Airbnb owners are reporting a talking to brokers about trying to dump a large number of their properties because they can't pay the mortgage rate on those properties. Uh, There's concern that commercial real estate may never rebound between the collapse of malls and the collapse of office space need uh, reflected in what response to this pandemic. Hospitals are losing money at a record rate. Many of them will never, uh, over 40% of people are now estimated, according to the University of Chicago, who have been laid off, will never get their jobs back that they had before. So what is that leading? That's leading more people to notice that the stock market's expectations of a future V-like return are increasingly unlikely. And consequently, Howard Marks, you can add him, according to the CNBC headline, to the list of notable investors who believe the market comeback has actually gone too far. Now, note the market comeback has only recovered 50% of the losses since February. And yet, according to him and others, it's the most overpriced market they've ever seen. They're saying that because they're seeing a uh, what's called a U-shaped recovery, which is a long, slow recovery, if any, like what happened after 2008. Or some are even talking about an L-shaped recovery, which isn't a recovery at all. You just sort of flatline for decades, much as what happened after the Great Depression. Indeed, as Bloomberg notes, the U.S. equity markets stubbornly ignore the doom that's happening everywhere else. And the question is how long that can last and whether the equity markets will continue to be inflated by what the Fed is doing in those markets. In response, you're having more and more substantial investors look at not only gold, as Peter Schiff is recommending, but people like Paul Tudor Jones bought Bitcoin. The way he puts it, the central bank money printing is at a record rate around the world, and there's increasing doubts about its ability to increase the real economy. If the people who get the money hoard the money rather than spend the money or try to pay off the large debts everybody has rather than do so, that's the kind of cash that's being spewed out of the Fed. 
And increasingly, uh, the, that's where it leads to investors saying now is the time to get on the fastest horse that is outside of the central bank monetary system. And they recommend that as Bitcoin. Why? Because $4 trillion has been printed in just the last two months, which is the equivalent of 7% of all global economic output. That's how much added money supply has been put into the economy. And yet the velocity of money continues to decline, suggesting you could have a combined deflationary, inflationary economy, inflationary in the real economy, deflationary in the asset world. Meanwhile, the civil liberties and civil rights and the privacy limitations continue to be a hindrance. As uh, CNN put out an article today, your car knows secrets about you, getting into detail about how people have been hacking cars to get all kinds of private intimate information as cars have become secret data centers from Tesla to BMW, Ford, Cadillac, Mercedes-Benz. All of these, quote, infotainment systems have been containing data, where you went, who else was in the car, what you listened to. All of that is increasingly being centralized in a data storage base that can be accessed by others as they wish. In the same context, as reported by Breitbart today, progressives are tracking the smartphone location data of lockdown protesters. Indeed, progressive activists are using cell phone location data to track the movements of those who have gone and attended anti-lockdown protest. This was buried, as they buried the lead in a Guardian article that was picked up on by Breitbart. The data was provided to uh, to the Guardian by the progressive campaign group, quote, the Committee to Protect Medicare has been tracking cell phone location data of demonstrators to find out who they are. The, the location data was captured from opt-in cell phone apps. Data scientists and the firm VoteMap used it to determine the movement of devices present at protest in late April and May. Virtually every app downloaded onto your smartphone collects location data often without disclosing where that data is being sent. So more evidence that they're trying to invade privacy under the pretext of COVID-19, not just in the testing and tracing experiment, but also taking place in uh, anybody who would simply attends a public protest. Meanwhile, on the, uh, on the economic context, 4 million Americans will get prepaid debit cards this week as a way of getting their relief money. This is an a easy ticket to a digital currency that could allow the government to have a degree of control and privacy invasion that would be unprecedented and unparalleled if they start moving to a digital currency, government currency-based system. In the same context of invasions of privacy, Apple and Google uh, COVID-19 tool gives health authorities more data. Indeed, Apple and Google are developing apps that will allow health systems and the government to access you they even uh, they call the system exposure notification in order to help authorities track whomever is a has COVID-19 or claimed to have it to track whom they come into contact with, whether that person has it or doesn't have it. This is both an invasion of privacy under the Fourth Amendment, used to be a violation of HIPAA provisions that apparently the federal government has made exemptions or exceptions to. And some state governments have analogous HIPAA laws, and apparently they are trying to do the same by regulatory fiat. So you see the same pattern evolving across the world of massive invasion of privacy, a population grid tracking system under the guise of pandemic control. Meanwhile, Attorney General Barr is stepping up to the plate based on suits that I or others have brought or threatened to bring in a range of jurisdictions. The Justice Department is finally threatening some meaningful action. Today, they threatened the governor of, New, uh, of California, Governor Gruesome, or Governor Newsom, 
take your pick as his name. And the words from Attorney General Barr was he needed to start reopening churches in California or the Department of Justice would intervene and start bringing its own legal actions. That's good to witness and see, as some courts have recognized that parts of the country that these restrictions and restraints on churches offend the free expression clause of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Meanwhile, we continue to see the more and more people recognize the dangers of a Bill Gates-driven pandemic policy response for, the, for around the world. This is coming in not only from the right, but increasingly from the left. Indeed, as this headline is from America Magazine, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and the case against billionaire philanthropy as we know it. Going into details about how this is sort of big trust, monopolistic style politics of the past, disguised as philanthropy. People pushing a certain political agenda that has not been approved by the public, often discussed and designed in secret, and then pushed under bogus pretexts and propaganda to achieve an objective different than what they're promoting it as. That that poses great risks and dangers to us, as everyone should remember from the experience of Microsoft's antitrust policies in the 1990s that led to the Justice Department suit against them in the early 2000s. Indeed, in this uh, publication, Grain.org, which is a small international nonprofit, mostly of left-leaning farmer groups around the world, they note the same risk under the cover of philanthropy, a monopoly machine at work, talking about the dangers of Bill Gates and his related and correlated parties and their goals to manipulate public policy disguised as public philanthropy. In addition, there's more commentary and other news today about the railroading of General Flynn. As Eli Lake, a national security reporter, went into great detail in Commentary Magazine, he explains the how the General Flynn was railroaded, why he was railroaded, and why his railroading must meet legal remedy and moral remedy in the public arena, explaining in detail all the things that happened, how Barack Obama was behind it, how Susan Rice was implicated, James Comey implicated, Sally Yates implicated, John Brennan implicated, James Clapper implicated, Andrew McCabe implicated, Peter Strozik, Lisa Page, Bill Priestap, many of the highest ranking politicized members of the Justice Department and the FBI and our intelligence infrastructure in the national security arena conspired to railroad General Flynn. And now their political allies and ideological allies in the judiciary and ex-judges are trying to continue to cover up the misconduct that took place, continue to try to selectively prosecute and punish General Flynn that precipitated Sidney Powell's emergency writ request to the D.C. Court of Appeals. It may reach the U.S. Supreme Court as well if there's inadequate remedy from the D.C. Court of Appeals. In the same context, in terms of dealing with real corruption, leaked tapes show Biden, of Joe, then Vice President Biden, pressuring the Ukrainian president to fire a prosecutor in return for the $1 billion. In, in addition, it shows him worried about how President Trump might reverse some of these policies or discover or uncover some of these issues right after his election. So these tapes show, uh, uh, confirm what had previously been stated by Biden at the Aspen Institute get-together, where he bragged about threatening a prosecutor with no uh, billion dollars unless he fired the prosecutor. But these tapes are even more embarrassing. It has the Ukrainian president acting like an employee of the vice president rather than as an independent president of an independent nation. It has the Ukrainian president on tape saying, I'm firing this prosecutor, even though our full investigation shows he did nothing corrupt or wrong at all. And I'm putting in the guy you want, even though there's problems or questions about him. That's right there on the tape. 
And uh, Joe Biden is just happy to go along with it, to get along, to get what he needed and get what he wanted to preserve and protect his own political legacy of potential corruption allegations, hide it from the Trump administration, and then try to shift the blame when the Ukrainian impeachment effort came about, which appeared much like Russiagate was intended to cover up Obamagate, Ukrainegate was much uh, was intended to cover up Bidengate. And that's what the tapes are further substantial evidence and confirmatory facts behind. Meanwhile, Hollywood is mostly worried about the continued effort to big tech censorship. And so they want to join in on the parade and they want to misuse and abuse copyright laws to try to ban President Trump from using pop culture memes. It's important that the copyright laws are designed so that a, you protect the financial value of an artist's creation. However, it, it, in order to balance the First Amendment rights implicated in any form of expression concerning anyone else's uh, creation, anyone else's script or writing or artistic work, the, there is a fair use right under the law. And that means that if you are using it for the purposes of criticism, for the purposes of commentary, for the purposes of anything like that that's within the realm of the First Amendment, then you have a free license to do so, and you cannot be uh, sued under the copyright law when you are engaged in fair use of a copyright. What they're trying to do is to abuse the power, like they have done against people on YouTube and other places, where they uh, allege a copyright strike that is not rooted in the law and the facts. Indeed, there was a prominent case recently with Sargon of Akkad, where a prominent leftist put up a YouTube video crying about Hillary Clinton's loss. Sargon, of, she sued him, made the mistake of suing him. The federal court found it such a ridiculous suit because it was clear fair use, even though Sargon of Akkad said nothing whatsoever. Uh, the personality behind it, Carl, uh, said nothing about it whatsoever. All he did is put her up as, as, as inherent implicit mockery just to look at what she had presented. That, too, was protected fair use. And so obviously so that the federal district court not only dismissed it, but is now considering ordering attorney's fees. And uh, the plaintiff who sued, she's going to have to pay Sargon of Akkad's uh, legal fees for even having to defend the case. But here you have Hollywood promising to use its institutional power against meme makers because most meme makers are, are small, independent, individual actors. People like Carpe Donctum and others, uh, Soul Memes and others. These are people who create brilliant, ingenious memes that, be, that can by themselves become political rallying points more effective and impactful than any campaign ad or campaign song. And they can become more lasting in their legacy. That is why Hollywood is now joining with big tech to try to limit the access of those big of, of memes to be effective and impactful in the public arena by threatening copyright strikes to deplatform people or to even potentially sue people uh, who don't have the legal wherewithal or resources to defend themselves. So that's where Hollywood's mindset and mentality is. Though, of course, maybe uh, Elon Musk is at least partially right about his simulation-designed world that he occasionally talks about, given this headline from the New York Post. NASA scientists detect evidence of a parallel universe where time runs backward. So maybe that will partially explain some of the insanity we're currently experiencing in the political arena. Meanwhile, we have uh, continued data on the COVID side of the aisle. As just a reminder, people have been going through some of what the New York Times and other media published in showing how they completely exaggerated the COVID-19 risk. Chart one is a reminder of what happened in terms of what was predicted by the various models. And in fact, the numbers continued to stay flat until ultimately they went down. 
The models talked about those high, crazy numbers were going to happen with hospitalizations and ventilators and ICUs. They never occurred. It was always a lie. Meanwhile, if we look at uh, chart number three, we see that the uh, number in terms of who is dying of COVID-19, this isn't the death rate. This is what the age is of the person who has died. We see that the numbers are minuscule for people, for children, and yet they're still not allowed to go to school. Uh, For teenagers and young people, uh, also minuscule, and yet they're not allowed to go out to the park or participate in large parts of public life. Indeed, it's only when you get older and if you li- uh, that the where the deaths are occurring, and almost all of those, in fact, ninety nine point six percent of them in New York, are people who had other comorbid conditions or were in a nursing home. Meanwhile, a range of economic data continues to show problematic trends. If we look at chart number four, we see the National Association of Home Builders market, and we see it's taken one of the biggest collapses and fastest falls in in recent history. Indeed. The size of the fall is equivalent to what happened in the real estate market collapse in 2007 and 2008. In the same context, additional data uh, shows that uh, we're seeing the things that should be going down uh, are actually going up. The things that should be going up are going down, and other things are continuing to stagnate across the board. Meanwhile, if we look at what happened in Georgia and Florida and Texas, we continue to see that those places that shut down late and opened up early continue to see excellent results. If we look at chart number 11, we see that uh, Georgia's weekly rate of of deaths continues to decline and flatline long after it decided to open up. In this uh, time period, it should have been experiencing a rise if, in fact, reopening the economy was going to do that by this point. Meanwhile, some political sheriffs are willing to take a stand continually against the rogue actions of their governors. This was the Illinois State Police Facebook post, which made clear that they would refuse to enforce the governor's order. They say the Illinois State Police will not issue any criminal misdemeanors to individuals for violations of the governor's temporary emergency rules or executive orders. No individual will be arrested or taken to jail for a violation of his executive orders or emergency rules. Indeed, more and more police officers are pushing back, recognizing that the Constitution is their first obligation, not the second obligation in this context. Meanwhile, we have people like the Fed chairman, whose only answer to all of this is just to print, print, print. Let's take a look at what he said on CBS's 60 Minutes in video number two simply flooded the system with money. Yes, we did. That's another way to think about it. We did. Where does it come from? Do you just print it? We print it digitally. So we, you know, we, as a central bank, we have the ability to create money uh, digitally. And we do that by buying treasury bills or, or bonds or other government guaranteed securities. And that, that actually increases the money supply. We also print actual currency, and we distribute that through the Federal Reserve banks. Meanwhile, what are banks reporting? It's apparently the Fed's strategy may be propping up politically preferred actors on Wall Street, but it's not working for the ordinary everyday economy. According to this uh, report in chart 19, 18% of the portfolio of a major Canadian bank is already into six months of deferrals. They expect a higher level of defaults in the loan book in 2020 than they have ever experienced in history. 
Home Capital reports similarly that they have deferred payments on on $3.93 billion because their borrowers are unable and incapable of being able to pay the mortgages due. This has led to comments like this business owner, if we look at video clip number 14, who's tired of a lockdown preventing his opportunity to simply work. Media has reported certain people have died of COVID-19. They haven't. Media is reporting nurses crying and saying, well, you know, I just want a mask so I can protect. They weren't even real nurses. And if they were nurses, they, weren't, they haven't worked in an, uh, in an ER or an ICU in over a year and a half. They're like, so, they're, they're media, they're paid actors. You've got people with the same image, different names died in different parts of the country with COVID-19. But the same person, it's the same image. It's all this, they got hospital footage from one hospital and then saying it's another hospital, saying another hospital. All these lies. If, if this was really a true thing, then why is the media not reporting the truth? We're, we're living in the age of, of, of social media. Everybody can pick up a video. I mean, you can't trip and fall without it being on social media. Where are these hundreds of thousands of deaths? Where are they? And the deaths that they're showing, they're mannequins. They're not even real people, okay? The footage of doctors and nurses, Tweet. you know, dancing in the all over the all over the country. Why? Because they're idle. There's nothing going on. And I've said this for 20 years that if there's another civil war, it will be based upon the issue of vaccinations. And it may be a civil war in every country. People talk about, do you think World War III is coming? I think World War III is coming, but I don't think it's going to be coming like people think. I think it's going to be a war of, on the right now. This is an attack on consciousness. And I think the war will be within each country where there will be those that want the choice and those that are being forced to take the choice that are going to revolt. I have to give up my business that I worked 25 years, sacrificed my life for, okay, for coronavirus. I'll take coronavirus over losing my business, okay? And I guarantee you 99% of the people who are here will do the same thing. And really all of this is for a mindset and an attitude of Karens that's gripping the society and the culture, as well depicted in this popular parody that made that went viral today. Let's take a look at video clip number seven. I had to get out of there. I thought the coronavirus was all around me. Who wasn't wearing a mask? Who weren't wearing gloves? Some lady was standing five and a half feet away from me. I don't know what to do anymore. Who do I listen to? Do I listen to the experts on TV or the experts on Facebook? What happened to Dr. Fauci? How come he's not in the news conference anymore? What did they do to Dr. Fauci? Oh, my God. Did a spaceship land in the Rose Garden and take him away to a different planet? Oh, my God. I got to come down. I got to come down. Oh, my God. What if the virus is out here? What do I do with the gloves and the mask? What if the viruses are these? How do I get rid of them? I don't want to throw them on the street. That's not nice. I'll get rid of it later. Oh, my God. I touched the steering wheel. What if the virus is on the steering wheel now? I just spit on the dashboard. What if the virus is on the dashboard? I just do. Oh, my God. I got to come down. I got to come down. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to some music. Oh, my God. I just I just touched the knob. What if the virus is on the knob? Oh, my God. Calm down, Vic. Calm down. Calm down. Easy. Easy. We'll get through this. Yeah. That's it. We'll get through this. Wait a minute. How do I drive home? Maybe I'll call Lucy and tell her to pick me up. Wait a minute, I can't. What if I take the virus in the hot car? Oh my God, oh my God, I touched my face. What if the virus is on my face? Oh my God, wait a minute, I got it. I got it. I'll call Lupa. 
Wait a minute, I can't, I can't call Uber. That's somebody else's car. What if the virus is in their car? What if the guy driving Uber has the virus? I got it. I burned the car. That's it. I burned the car and I'll walk home. I'll walk home. Yeah, but the virus is out there. I can't leave the car. What do I do? Classic New Yorker's approach to the insanity of what's taking place. So in this time of insanity, stay sane yourself. You can support this show by supporting our sponsor, InfoWarsStore.com, where you can get things that support your health, support your sanity, support your uh, your political beliefs, and support your ideas. You can make yourself healthier, wealthier, and wiser all at the same time. Welcome back to American Countdown. We're going to be up in a bit with Julia Song. You can find her at EV Magazine, also been a commentator for One America News Network, and uh, CNN even allowed her to write a column now and then uh, when they're deciding to have some balance in their news. Uh, someone who has experienced all aspects of life across the world, both from as someone who was born in Brazil and immigrated here legally to the United States, understands the risk and threat that statism poses as a remedial system, whether it be a, a fascist sort of methodology of government as affected Brazil and Argentina and large parts of Central and Latin America, or the sort of socialism of the left that infected Latin America as well. Anyone that has in-detailed experience with Latin America knows the propensity for it to fluctuate between either a kind of corporate fascism of the right or a statist socialism of the left, neither serving its populace or its electorate well. And those attempts of populist reform in Latin America and Central America have been led, uh, fa faced resistance from both the corporatist right and the statist left. And so their abilities to maintain and sustain in the same way that Bolsonaro is now trying to do in Brazil, like what Trump is doing in the United States, is meeting resistance in the pandemic political era by regional governors in Brazil, just like the president is facing resistance from the regional governors of the United States, and in both contexts causing problems in both arenas. So, uh, Julia, glad you could be with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So the from your perspective, as someone who has seen the world literally uh, what in watching how the pandemic response has taken place in both you know, Brazil and the United States, what are some of your initial thoughts? I think that this is very scary. And I mean, one of the reasons as to why I got involved in U.S. politics was because uh, I knew all of the the incredible signs that were out there. Um, you know, in, in socialist societies, so how socialism plays in different countries is depending on the structure of the country. But coming up to it is very similar wherever you go. So you see a slow uh, demise of things like uh, social liberties and rights and things like that. And people say, oh, let's just uh, give up a little bit, a little bit. And every year you give up a little bit more to the point where you have a government that is set up nowadays to take all your rights away from you within two weeks. Um, I think that for you, who is a, um, a civil rights lawyer, must be very shocking to see all of this. The fact that people can't even uh, go work and provide for their families. I mean, starvation kills as well. And I have been all over the world, and I see how little people live with. So I don't think those people can afford to go without work for that long. And it... No, no politician cares about those people. They don't care about the majority of us. They care about their own agenda. And it's scary how quickly they can put those things forth 
and and how quickly our lives can be affected by it. And in terms of your life experience, what led you to want to come to the United States in the first place, uh, given what you're now witnessing both here and in Brazil? So I moved here because of family reasons. And I had, you know, in Brazil, we gave all that power to the government. So by the time I was ready to fight it, the government had so much power and it was such a hard fight that it, it, it took a lot from me. So when I moved to the United States, I thought, I don't want to be involved in politics. But I saw all those leading signs of people be, being willing to give up their liberties. And this has now started two weeks ago or in March, within two weeks. This has been, uh, the foundation has been laid over time so that these rights can be taken away from you. And so when I moved here, I saw all of the, those um, signs coming into place. And I thought, I, I know where that leads to. And I have to get involved before the government gets to a point where it's so powerful that fighting it will be a, a very difficult battle. And so I figured at this point I could uh, start putting myself out there. There's the, the First Amendment. There's the Second Amendment. There's all these different civil rights and, and the Bill of Rights. But it, it doesn't seem to be important to these politicians right now. Uh, they, they keep going against the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. The Constitution to them is just a game. And they're willing to play by their own rules. They're not willing to play by the Constitution. So um, it, why are the rules different for them than for us? I, don't, I just don't understand it. I think that that's a sign of... Uh, a government that needs to be uh, looked into very carefully. And have you followed what's been going on uh, in Brazil? Uh, I guess first, there's a lot of sort of uh, different opinions of Bolsonaro. What's your take on him and, and from uh, you, the people you know in Brazil and your perspective? I like him. I mean, a lot of the work that I did was to put someone like him in power. I think that he's a very... Uh, honest person. I don't think he's a liar or a corrupt person. Um, but I do think that there's so many things against him. There's the media, there's the different politicians, there's the, the system of corruption that comes with when you give that much money and that much power to the government, people don't really want to let go. So that system, even though we got rid of the president, the socialist president, a lot of these individuals who were uh, part of the, uh, the, the, you know, the spinning wheels, they're still there, and they're fighting him at every turn. So it's it's been really difficult. It's been almost like a Trump situation where he's trying to push for something, and Pelosi and all these different people, they're pushing back. So it's a, it's a very similar situation, but at the same time, I feel like he's well-equipped to deal with it. I, I trust that his leadership will be able to thrive. Um but then again, we need access to data. We need access to all these different things. And when you put a population that's already in poverty through even more poverty, it, it's, it's a hard place to be in. And yet, the, what has been the sort of feedback from people in Brazil about how the, is the media pushing in Brazil the way they are here about pushing panic, stay indoors, all of that kind of dynamic? Is it similar to what's happening in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's worse. Um, uh, we have a lot of here, we have a lot of strong freedom fighters. We have a lot of data at our fingertips over there. They have to wait until this data is translated. They have to, 
So the the panic lasts a little bit longer, right? Every time there's the the media comes up with a new thing, the panic lasts a little bit longer because people have to wait until somebody who is independent translates a study that is interesting to them. And then that study becomes, you know, mainstream or, or the population has access to it. So you see panic in a lot of parts of the world. And when people are panicked, that's that's never a good idea. Um, th- there's all kinds of violence going on. There's all kinds of uh, population, you know, uh, conflict because everybody is trying to survive in this pandemic world when people are actually um, surviving this at a rate of 99.9% in most countries. So it's it's a sad thing to see, honestly. And can you explain to people for a country like Brazil that's very export-driven how when the U.S. shuts down its economy, some of the states here, that causes major harm in places like Brazil? Yeah, um, that causes major harm everywhere, honestly. I think that you know, we, we're not considering industries, for example, countries such as, you know, my hometown in Brazil is uh, the main part of the economy is tourism. There's nothing else. So how are these people going to work? How are they going to pay their bills? They're not. And so you have places like in uh, Central and South America and all over the world that people their whole livelihoods are going to be gone forever, and people are not going to want to travel after this. They're not even going to have money to travel after this. And I have been running weekly reports on financials and and economics on 20 different countries all over the world, uh, Africa, Asia, Middle East, et cetera. For example, Jordan, they had a full martial law. Everything everywhere is closed. You can be on the streets. So I think that this also sets a precedent for people who have evil intentions to understand that they can take advantage of this at any point. I don't think that there's anything good coming out of this. I think that people are going to be starving, the panic, the consequences of the the government actions, and the things that could happen from the future uh, now that we've set this uh, precedent are very terrifying uh, based on my experience, and I'm sure that the experience of many people who have uh, survived government overreach situations. Yeah, could you explain that, how it's the, be- the, at the beginning it will look like it's, it's necessary, it's no big deal, but how that becomes uh, the loss of your core civil liberties over time? Um, so it's, it's all for the greater good, and that's one of the reasons as to why I'm being very... Uh, you know, uh, I'm being criticized for not wanting to wear masks, but I feel like um, I shouldn't have to cover my face because if I give up a little bit, then then there's the next thing. They said masks wouldn't do anything. They said masks weren't good for nothing. And now we have to wear masks and now it's mandatory to wear masks. And so if they keep changing the narrative all the time and we keep complying with it and we keep acting like this is all going to be when there's no concrete studies or concrete data that proves to the population that wearing a mask is going to stop the coronavirus. It's just not. It's just meant to make people feel comfortable. And I refuse to make people feel comfortable at the expense of my liberty because there's people who don't feel comfortable with guns. There's people who don't feel comfortable with all sorts of different things. And, And their liberty ends where mine begins. So 
uh, I don't I don't believe in all of this. I think that when you give up a little bit, you and, and there's also the the concept of there's pe these people are doing their jobs, but the governments have been known for damaging people, killing people to extents that the coronavirus could never dream of. So when you give them a little bit of power, when you're not willing, you know, you have to at least be willing to fight back a little bit. When they push for something that takes your liberty away, you, you have to be willing to ask questions. And when you don't, when you simply just comply with everything, even though there's absolutely no rational reason behind it, then you're giving them a message that's very, very difficult to take back. So um, governments are going to take advantage of this. They already have. They uh, spent the $2 trillion uh, stimulus bill. They're working on others. And that's, you know, that's going to um, cause inflation to go up. Prices of goods are going to go up. But people are not going to get their jobs back. Their jobs are gone. So we have to be willing to say no. At some point, no. It's, I'm not even worried about the mask so much, but it's more like the, the line has been crossed. You have to, at one point, stop and, and ask questions. Exactly. And in that same context, because you're describing the risk that of inflation that can come from pumping in cash, that can come from uh, all of a sudden your food cost. And I think people that have a more international life experience have experienced that. Here in the States, almost no one's experienced that. Could you explain what that life can be like where all of a sudden groceries cost 10 times more than they did last week? Yeah, um, that's what that was one of the reasons that's why I was so critical of this stimulus bill, because $1,200 could help a lot of people, right? Uh, a lot of people live with, you know, especially if they lose their jobs, they're going to be living under a situation where $1,200 could help them pay the groceries. However, when you think about it at a, a macroeconomic level, when you think about the whole country and, and all of these different things that come into play, you understand that injecting 2.2, uh, doing this bill, where you're um, injecting $2.2 trillion dollars of a money that doesn't even exist, right, in a nation that's already in debt uh, by trillions of dollars, then you're creating inflation. So a piece of bread that used to cost $3 now is going to cost 30 So if even though you have 1200 that 1200 is not going to be valued the way that you know it to be valued today. It's going to be valued way less. So you're actually just getting, let's say, 300 bucks if you consider the prices of goods and, and how all of that's going to go. So one time payment of 300 bucks, it's not good enough to keep people going. But when you put it in the aspect of like the bread and circus types of type of politics, that's true. I'm going to give you a little bit. Um, people think about that initial, you know, moment where they're going to get that check, but they don't think about the fact that once that check runs out and you will run out quickly, what's going to happen to us? And uh, it's it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. And I think we have the power to stop this. If we decide to stop complying without asking questions, we have to ask questions. We have to hold people accountable. Wait, you say masks didn't work, and now you're saying they work. What about this uh, malaria drug? What about this, you know, uh, people coming out saying that there's track and tracing that to me sounds horrifying, sounds horrifying, because it is a power that could be used for good, but it will be used for bad. It could be used for bad 
it absolutely will be used for bad. So why would we give them that type of power? Uh, I don't I don't understand that. It's it's beyond me. Could you describe you followed Venezuela and other countries that have very rapidly fallen apart, both in terms of rise of statism, uh, hyperinflation, uh, deprivation of employment, complete dependence on the government. Could you explain sort of what happened in Venezuela and why that's why we have to be hyper alert in the rest of the West that it doesn't happen to us? So um, it's I this is something that I've said and uh, people don't really realize that. And they they had this saying of America will never be a socialist country. And I told them there's already so many institutions and the way that the federal government is setting itself up to be so powerful, the way that we are giving so much of our liberties away to the government already, if they want to make the change, it's like this. It's very quickly and nothing's going to stop them, right? They already have all that power. So, for example, if something were to happen tomorrow that Bernie Sanders would become the president, would he be able to push us into a socialist hellhole very quickly? Yes. So that's what happened in Venezuela, in which uh, within, you know, once it happens, it's it's very quickly because all of the foundations have been put in place to allow for that to happen. So we, we don't really see it. And, and when it happens, it's very quickly. They, they just pretty much just uh, make it official. And it's, it's you know, it took, a, it took them two weeks to keep us locked into our homes and keep us from providing to our families. They have that kind of power. They're using that kind of power. Is it a legitimate power? I don't know, but they're using it. And the people are going to be starving. The people are going to be suffering very badly from this. And I don't think that we should be, you know, looking at this with with eyes of it's just a pandemic. I think we need to look at it as a whole uh, concept of economics, social impact, and et cetera. Yeah, that effectively the pandemic's being used to have a massive shift of power from the individual to the state, amongst politically preferred groups, from the uh, economic real economy to the central banks. Uh, And now, of course, there's the public health call to use it as a pretext for forced vaccinations. Uh, What's your thoughts on that? Um, I'm not against vaccines. In fact, when I moved to the U.S., I had to have an enormous amount of vaccines given to me at one time. Then, uh, because I travel uh, internationally, I especially to places like Africa, I just the other day, I think maybe three months ago, I had to take, no, we're in May, five months ago, I had to take six vaccines to be able to prove that I, that I was going to be okay in those countries, that I wasn't going to bring anything. But there's people who have allergic reactions, and I, I'm very fortunate that I didn't. And I was just on the phone with a, a friend of mine that her wife, she had a paralysis from this. And just like any other medicine, just like any other thing, vaccines do have side effects. So if we're going to vaccinate the whole world, are we considering the percentage of the population who are going to have side effects, who are going to potentially have life-changing circumstances happen to them that could even cause death? Are we considering those lives? Because if we say it's going to save just one life, then perhaps that's not the way to go. But then if it's going to save just one life, maybe we should just all stay at home and, and, 
and just shelter inside a bubble. You know, that's, that's the reality of life. We have to realize that we take risks every day and risks are part of freedom. We choose to take those risks and that freedom should not be taken away from us. Have you been surprised at how large parts of the United States have responded to this in the sense of politicians shutting down large, suspending constitutional liberties, shutting down large parts of the economy, issuing orders that feel like what some people would call a Latin American dictatorship kind of government kind of style of approach? I've been really surprised. I've been shocked. Um, And, you know, this kind of triggers, especially for those of us who have seen that side of the government, uh, it triggers almost like a PTSD because we kind of, we have experienced that. We know what happens when you give government power. And even if Trump doesn't use that power for bad, who's to guarantee that four, eight, 10, 12 years from now, somebody's not going to come in power and use that against us? You know, uh, there's always that one bad leader. There's always that one bad person that changes everything. So are we willing to give all that power to pretty much decimate millions, to get us out of work, to jail us for just opening up our businesses or just being outside at the beach? Are we willing to give that power to the government? And if we trust that this current government can handle it, who's to say that the next government, the next person, isn't going to handle this, uh, this, this amount of power in a very negative way? I think that we need to hold on to as many liberties as we can because we, we, they shouldn't have that. They shouldn't have access to that. They shouldn't be able to do those things and pretty much decide who lives and who dies. I think that this needs to be stopped immediately, and I, it's beyond me. But I think that the fact that America has not experienced that type of government has influenced the, the response of the people. But we need to look back into our roots and figure out, you know, the Constitution, our liberties, our rights. Those are the main things that we're known for. This is why America is respected, and this is why America is such a a wealthy, beautiful country. And we need to look back at those things and realize they worked. Let's stick to what works, and let's not try things that have been proven to be a failure all over the world. Let's not try that. Let's stick to what works. And if uh, what do you think your what would be your advice both to ordinary people and to President Trump in terms of getting the country back on track and away from that perilous path that has proven problematic uh, around the world? So what I would do to the people, I would say, open your business, open your business. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to starve? Are you going to let somebody who doesn't know your name, who doesn't know your family, who doesn't know your situation? decide whether you get to put food on your table or not. Um, Open your business, go outside, go to the beach. You know, if you're a person that is at risk, then yes, take precautions, stay at home. But if you're just a person who needs to put food on the table, you need to get out there and you need to fight for your right to live, to be alive. You know, financial censorship is a type of censorship. the ability to be out there, the ability to speak, it, it's a type of censorship. So economic censorship and, and all of these different things, they are a tool of governments who are trying to 
uh, damage society to an extent that people can no longer fight back. And I think that we need to go against that. And for President Trump, he needs to listen to us. We're, we're out here talking every day about how we just want to go back to work. And he needs to use his powers and, and cut funding to the states that have this uh, terrible laws. And he needs to use the, the interstate uh, commerce clause and all these different things to open the economy, because this is not a joke. People are really struggling. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a cost that our country isn't willing to able to pay. Exactly. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we do indeed, in order to say yes to freedom, we need to say no to masks and a lot of other policies and politics they want to push down our throat. You can follow Julie at Rule Julie at Real Julia Song on uh, Twitter uh, and also at EV Magazine. She's a great follow. Real Red Pill, Real Red Pill Plus, X2, X3. And over here, Vitamin Mineral Fusion with all the amino acids, the vitamins, the minerals. Turbo Force 10 hour clean energy. You just go on down the line, Vaso Beats and all the rest of it. These are things God gave us to the natural environment that we're not supposed to be aware of. What do you think the drug companies do? They give you synthetic versions of this for 10, 20, 30 times what that actually costs. But we promote what God gave us and we go out and we find the very best products available. Look at this, DNA Force Plus. You know, I remember getting pitched this by a developer six, seven years ago about PQQ and CoQ10. We had to buy the first product we got from Mitsubishi. The Japanese are obsessed with this. And I remember going, okay, this stuff's really great. And I started taking it. And like a month in, my back that had been hurt, like was hurting again because the nerves were growing back and I was having these wild dreams and like I was like what the hell is this well it turns out God gave us a lot of things look at this do an overhead shot of him look at this look what's in a bottle of DNA Force Plus look at that because in this universe We've been given a lot of things. We take them for granted, but man, I tell you, what's in that is something incredibly special. But that's the way it works, isn't it? All I deliver is what is the best. And that's DNA Force Plus at InfoWarsStore.com. If I was selling you containers full of air, and you funded those, you're funding something real that promotes a pro-human future. But we're not selling containers of air. I can get krill oil for $2 a bottle, and it still has great effects. This krill oil cost us more than $10 a bottle. It is ultimate krill oil, and the health effects and what it does are incredible. I could sell you a synthetic PQQ or CoQ10 for $20 a bottle. But there's way more than that in each bottle of DNA Force Plus. I could come out with some AM, PM, 13 different pills for probably $5 a package. Instead, this cost us $25 a package 
because the AMPM packs in here have the very best quality because I metaphysically cannot sit up here and claim I'm doing all this big important work and then give you hot air. So you all built InfoWars. You believed that I was telling you the truth. You believed I stood before what was right. And now you've seen all this incredible change we've done together. And now you know we're all real. You're real and I'm real. And so the next question is, what are we gonna do now? And the answer is, the enemy knows we're for real. The enemy knows we love justice. And so the enemy's coming to destroy us. But that's okay. Because in the final equation, we're gonna come together and we're gonna win. This is our greatest test. So I thank you all for supporting me and supporting yourself because that's the essence of victory.